0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free. Right now, join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang, the advice to think like an entrepreneur can possibly, from a certain angle, come off as the kind of rote tech bro guidance that you'd get from Millennial Life Hackers. But my guest today makes a very good case that all of us, whether we're entrepreneurs or not, can benefit from having what he calls an entrepreneurial mindset. What's more, he says this mindset is a trainable skill. To be clear, he's not arguing we should all become rapacious capitalists. He believes that capitalism and compassion are compatible even though those are two words you don't often hear in the same sentence. My guest is Reid Hoffman. He's the co-founder of LinkedIn. He's a partner at Greylock, which is a big venture capital fund. And he's the host of Masters of Scale, a very popular podcast, which is all about how uber-successful people and companies got where they are. He now has a new book, which is called Masters of Scale. In this conversation, we talk about how to actually train for an entrepreneurial mindset how to live a life that minimizes the odds of burnout, how to network without feeling icky, the value of curiosity in the workplace, the importance of failing fast, how to deliver feedback in a stressful environment, and how he thinks we can actually make capitalism more compassionate and equitable. So we'll dive in with Reed in just a second. Before that, two items of business. First... Today's episode with Reed is actually a bit of a preview for a new five-part series we're launching next week. It's called the Work Life Series, and it's all about how to live better lives at work. And to help you solidify what you're going to learn in the series, we also have a challenge that we're going to be running over on the 10% Happier app. The challenge launches on November 8th. Much more about the Work Life Series and the challenge next week, but be sure to join us. Okay, next item of business... If you've been listening to this show recently, you know that I've been uh, joking a little bit about my imminent obsolescence as my colleague Matthew Hepburn rolls out his new podcast, which he has audaciously named 20% Happier. I'm, in all seriousness, very, very excited about what Matthew and the team are creating. On the 20% Happier podcast, Matthew and his guests, who are everyday people who meditate just like you or just like most of you or just like most of you want to be. Matthew and these guests have intimate, honest conversations about how meditation can help in everyday life. Matthew dives really deep into his guests' moment-to-moment experiences, from feeling frustrated while trying to conjure loving kindness for somebody who you don't really like, to feeling anxiety taking hold in stressful situations, either at work or at home. So if you like what you're hearing right here on the 10% Happier podcast, I think you're going to love, maybe twice as much. What you will hear on Matthew's show, where he really draws back the curtain on how a meditation teacher talks to people about their practice and how to apply that practice to their lives. If you want to listen to the 20% Happier show, and I think you do, you got to download the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps, and then open it up and tap on the podcasts tab to check it out. Enjoy. Okay, we'll get started with Reed Hoffman right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I gotta tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. Hoffman, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Dan. So in your new book, you talk about the notion of an entrepreneurial mindset. What is that and how do we train it?
1: Well, so actually I think it's more learned than trained or self-trained, perhaps. The way that you do it is you kind of have a bias to action. So one of the things that kind of entrepreneurs do versus other thing is, is while you may plan, you may gather resources, you do things You have a bias to act and to learn and to learn from what you do and then reiterate and improve. Sometimes, of course, frequently you fail and then or you do a micro failure and then you adjust and and do something. And the way that you kind of engage in this self-learning, this kind of um, self-training, you know, part of it is that there's a set of questions that you ask, a set of tools that you bring to bear about, for example, like how to take intelligent risk or be willing to go and ask for investment or for collaboration or so forth. And when you hear no's, what you get from those no's, and the way that you ask people about your ideas is not, what do you think of my idea? Because then, you know, that sounds like, on a 10% happier thing, please tell me that it's good so I feel better. It's actually, in fact, Tell me what you think won't work about my idea, because then I could possibly learn from it and I can possibly iterate and improve it. And so the book, you know, alongside the podcast and the courses, is an attempt to make that more available for people to learn, to make entrepreneurial thinking, which I think is actually important to everyone, not just entrepreneurs. I think every career, I think every work project of serious sort, to make that kind of entrepreneurial mindset more available.
0: Would it be an accurate or at least semi-accurate summation to say the entrepreneurial mindset is fail fast? In part, it's almost like if you did the full quote, it's fail sooner than
1: later, (laughs) right? So fail fast rather than fail slow or fail long. And the reason for that is because if you fail fast, you have an ability to adjust, right? So usually there's a, a window for creating your entrepreneurial project. It would be the I only got X amount of capital, whether it's I'm um, opening a corner store or a restaurant or creating a big tech company. And so you want to learn as fast as you can which points will be failures. You want to tackle the difficult points, the points that are most likely to actually sink you. So that if they do sink you, they sink you early and you can adjust. So one of the kind of Silicon Valley proponents where it says, oh, fail fast is our dictum. And then people say, we celebrate failure. It's like, oh, no, I don't celebrate failure. I celebrate learning, right? And you want to learn as fast and as much as possible. And so therefore steering into the real problems, trying them, seeing if you can make it work. And if you can make it work, great. And if you can't, then learning something from it and adjusting.
0: So you said this entrepreneurial mindset can be learned. Or maybe self-trained. How? Well, it's primarily through acting,
1: right? So it's primarily through going and trying and doing things. Now, with that, you want to have the right mindset for doing it. You want to have, like, for example, it isn't just, you know, the kind of the classic 10,000 hours. And part of how additional psychology is learned is it isn't actually, in fact, just 10,000 hours, it's the quality of learning per hour. And if you learn very well per hour, you know, someone who does 100 hours could learn what someone else might do in 1,000. So you want to be learning per hour, per action, per activity very well, which means that you need to be paying attention to what kinds of things you need to be learning. And part of the reason why we focus in the Masters of Scale podcast and the book on the people who have done successful scale activities is here are the positive lessons, because there's many ways to fail. There's many ways to fail to scale. And what you want to do each time you make the effort, each time that you take that jump, you know, possibly into the unknown, that you're learning from it right? So it's kind of like always be learning. And you're learning really well. You're learning the things that most matter. You're learning the thing that's most repeatable. And that's part of the reason why, for example, within entrepreneurship, engaging directly with your prospective customers, because learning what your customers really want and don't want, and what really is magical and and delightful for them, is actually, in fact, one of the things that's really key. And so you need to be learning that much more importantly than you say, well, I learned a new organizational system, or I learned that these manila folders are better than those manila folders. And you're like, okay, that's a learning, but that learning is not nearly as important in entrepreneurship as what really is a great thing for your customers.
0: In your book, you talk about, I don't really love this phrase, but you know, sort of self-care practices, things you can do to take care of yourself. I'm just curious, I could imagine how some people might think these two things are at odds. Taking care of yourself, trying to make yourself a more mindful, compassionate person, could that be at odds with scaling a massive company or being massively successful in whatever you're doing?
1: I think ultimately no, although there's a local timing question. So part of what happens with entrepreneurship and building scale companies is you sometimes have a day or a week or a month to do this. And you go, okay, well, maybe this week, I'm not going to the gym. Maybe this week, I am gonna be sleeping six hours a night maybe this week. And so, you know, you do have to occasionally push yourself in those ways because there's world time constraints. And you would say, well, but that's not a self-care practice. That's not a happiness practice. That as you do that over time, that really degrades you. And you do have to pay attention to self-care and happiness over time because, you know, if you're doing that five years, 10 years, then you're just kind of wrecking yourself and your overall, your performance is going way down. It's like, for example, A classic one of these is Are you making good decisions? You need to be making good decisions in order to learn well, in order to navigate away from landmines and to success in entrepreneurial efforts. So, degrading your sleep and making bad decisions over time is a very bad thing. Now, it may very well be that, oh my God, we have to ship this product tomorrow. All of the press is all lined up for it. All of the customers are ready to come. The advertising campaign is going to run. And if I don't stay up all night doing this, it's going to be like a big, you know, tarball and a a smoking cloud. And so you do that. And so sometimes you'll make micro or local, like what seem to be suboptimal self-care decisions, but that doesn't obviate the point, which is, no, no, you need to take care of yourself in good decision making and happiness and so forth. A startup is a marathon of sprints and you Mm -hmm. need to be able to run the marathon of the sprints.
0: (laughs) That would cover sort of classic self-care, you know, get yourself to the gym type of thing. What about the the steps that I know you've taken, and many people in leadership positions, thankfully, are increasingly taking to become more mindful and compassionate. Is there something about that that would be at odds with achieving financial outcomes and hockey stick-like growth?
1: Well, I guess it depends on what your learning curve is. A little bit like the learning per hour and the hundred thousand, ten thousand hours, which is, If it takes a lot of time for you to do your self-care, like you're like, well, the only way that I really calm my mind and my soul is to meditate two hours, four hours a day, then two or four hours is a big decrement to the work that you need to do in order to build a massive scale company. Because a massive scale company really is strapping onto a rocket, trying to go with it and have it not blow up, and just involves prodigious amounts of work and it is super stressful. It's not the same stress as going into a war zone, but it's something where you where everything could blow up, you could be a big failure, you could be responsible for lots of people who have joined your efforts, you know, economic setbacks and so forth. And so, you know, you sometimes you have to hire people, you have to fire people, all of which is very stressful. You're doing all that stuff. And that's not the same thing as, you know, I, I spent time being meditative in my garden. So there is that kind of tensions. But you know, classically people have these kind of false dichotomies and you say, well, so therefore self-care or like mental stuff is irrelevant. And you're like, absolutely not, (laughs) right? Because like, for example, if you're more balanced and equilibrium, don't have an anger management problem or building a healthy culture in your company, even if you're like, oh my God, we've got a week to solve this problem. Otherwise the whole ship is blowing up. You know, people can be happier. They may still be totally stressed, but there's like stressed and massively distressed, right? So I think there's still the range.
0: What are your thoughts about how to, in a startup, but really in any environment, we could be talking about parenting, volunteer work, marriages. It's important to give clear feedback, but sometimes that feedback can be really hard to hear. What are your thoughts about how to deliver feedback in a stressful, freighted environment?
1: That's a great question. And part of it is, you frequently see people who, under the guise of I'm giving honest feedback and I'm giving brass tacks feedback, to do it in ungentle ways. Because what you want to do is you want to be, you know, give clear, you want it to have heard, you need it to sometimes be part of the compact that you have with a person. Because, like, if they're having performance issues and and you may be firing them, if they have continue to have performance issues, you must be clear. They must have a chance to hear it, you know, etc. But on the other hand, there's ways to say it, right? So, Obviously, you know, like hyperbolic way A, you say, because you're a complete loser and an incompetent, the way that you're failing here is just, you know, endemic about how bad of a human being you are. And I can't understand why you, what anyone would allow you to work there. You're like, okay, that's, you know, terrible. And, and obviously not even factual, but it's like kind of the extreme edge where you could say, hey, I actually think the performance bar for this task actually looks like this. And right now you're not getting there. We're not getting there. And let's talk about it some. And let's talk about what are the ways that make it possible or not. And by the way, if it feels like too much of a stretch, then what I should do is I should help you like find another job, move on, do something else, get a different job here. But let's approach it as I respect you as a human being. I respect you, that you're trying. And I'm I'm approaching it collaboratively, even though I haven't given up or I haven't given up the notion that there is a competent bar in this. And there's a great book by Fred Kaufman that kind of says that, look, part of managing clearly is not just being compassionate to the individual, which it can be, which is clear feedback, but also to the teammates and the customers
0: and everything else. Do you feel like your game is pretty tight on this, or do you still struggle with it?
1: I would say this is probably one of the areas where I have unusually high superpowers. I think you could probably call everyone who's worked for me and worked with me and they'd say I'm good on this one. They might say that sometimes I'm a little slow, like I should have said it last Monday versus this Monday, (laughs) right? That I was trying to like work my way up to it, or that I was allowing it to be inefficient by having two conversations rather than one to build up to the point to bring the person with me. So those would be the criticisms I think that people would have of my style on this is by overweighting to go on this conversational feedback journey together, but. Doing it with compassion and doing it with a constructive, how can you have the best possible outcome for everyone out of the conversation? I think, you know, I think I get good marks on that.
0: And so what's going on for you if you're waiting, you know, making it two conversations instead of one? Is it, you know, fear of hurting somebody's feelings, wanting to do it right?
1: Well, I don't mind if hurting someone's feelings is good for them. Like they will become better and stronger for it. It's a little bit like compassion is not saving a person from pain. It's trying to make the pain in a way something they can learn from, grow from. It helps them. It's like, for example, you shouldn't try to save your children from pain. You should try to save them from pain that destroys them or pain that locks them in a mental box so they can't learn from or random pain, like pain that no point. But like a pain where like they picked a fight with a friend and the friend yelled at them and left, and they said, well, why did my friend leave? It's like, well, actually, in fact, let's try to figure out, you know, you should be respectful of your friends. You should express joy and and affection and care for your friends. And that if you don't, you'll have painful experiences. And so, you know, that, I mean, it's being simplistic, but, you know, that kind of thing I think is very important. So for me, I think what happens is it may be like a little bit of a superhuman complex. Like, no, no, I'm sure within the time parameter of us needing to solve this this startup problem, which by the way is always very short, I can still do that conversation in a way that with the two conversations rather than one, and then they understand it, and then they're on board with it, then it's good for them as well as good for the group and good for the project. You know, I would have to remind myself sometimes, no, no, we only have today. Like this has to be done today, right now, this meeting, this minute. And sometimes you have to move quickly, and sometimes that causes, you know, you break some glass, you break some china when that happens.
0: Much more of my conversation with Reed Huffman right after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable and uh, the quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices, not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns, quince.com slash happier. up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. I'll share something that I've learned with you just to see if you think this makes sense. I don't think anybody would describe compassionate feedback as one of my strengths. I'm not happy to admit this, but I I can err on the side of and definitely it, it's erring on the side of just kind of being in my own head and then sometimes bottling things up and letting them come out in unconstructive ways. And a This is not the right word, but it's the only word that's coming to mind, a hack or a approach that's been useful that was taught to me by – I talk about these guys a lot on the show – Dan Klerman and Mudita Nisker, a pair of uh, communications coaches who are going to be on the show soon. And I work with them personally, and one of the things they've recommended is to have in mind – your positive intention. In other words, what are you trying to achieve that is truly positive here? And to think about that in advance as you're planning your message and to try to hold it in your mind as you're delivering the feedback. How does that land for you? Very well.
1: And actually, in fact, what it is, is the way I would amplify it is what I have is a four-strength list of goods, right? So like, for example, it might be good for the success of the company, then you know, good for the team, then, you know, good for this individual, and then good for me. And so we then go. okay, here's what my list of goods are, because sometimes there's trade-offs between them. Then go, and here's my operational parameter What you do. But I'm focusing on the good, and I'm not forgetting that the individual themselves is there, and that I am there in this, in trying to make it happen. And it's like, look, I'm trying to do as good as I can by all of these constituencies as I go, and if I'm forced in a circumstance where, like, I have to make a decision right now, like, well, okay, you're fired right now, and you just have to do that, then you do it, <laughs> right? But you try to do it keeping in mind that I'm doing this for this reason of good, and not, of course, for I'm angry, you know, because that clouds decision-making. I have a ego issues, and it's like, you disrespected me, you know, or this is how I project that I'm important. And you need to set those things aside because those things ultimately— in a karmic way, will come back to roost. And it's best to be, you know, present, not selfless, present, but not egotistical.
0: In my experience, setting those things aside is hard to do.
1: Yeah, it's that's a lifetime's work, and you can always be
0: better. Getting back to what you said a, a few seconds ago about firing somebody, I take from that that it is possible to fire somebody compassionately.
1: Yes, I've done it. I've done it in multiple ways. I've done it as a board member firing CEOs. I've done it as an executive firing people. It's doable. And by the way, the test for compassion is not that they think you're a good person afterwards <laughs> or that they go, oh, that was great. Sometimes, by the way, that's great when they go, look, I appreciate the way you did that, right? And there's, there are people who I've fired who I'm still in regular contact with because they went, okay, like I disagree with you. They almost always disagree with you, but like I felt you approached it as a fellow human being who respected me. Right. And that's part of the thing is too often in firing, like you have to like take the person's face off for your own emotional thing. Like they're bad. This is on them. They're terrible. It's not my problem. It's their problem. But you can still approach it as a human being. You can still realize that there's another human being who is in shock at the other side of this, who has emotional difficulty. And too often what they try to do is they try to get the person to agree with them. Mm. It's like, you agree that you should be fired because you suck. And you're like, (laughs) okay, okay. (laughs) <laughs> that's terrible. You should have them be present and be able to learn and feel like, okay, like, okay, I got it. And and I'm going to learn and I'm going to be better next time. Now, sometimes they'll learn to say, well, I'm never going to work for a jackass like you again, <laughs> right? Fine. <laughs> you know, that's okay. Right. You know, but is approaching it as we are human beings on this journey of life together.
0: As you're talking, I'm, I'm having these thoughts and I'm going to see if I can articulate them well. I, I'm, you know, only 50% confident that I can do that. But You know, we're talking about compassion in the context of capitalism, and we're in an era where there are increasingly vocal critiques of capitalism. One that's come to mind recently is a book I've talked about on the show a couple of times called The Overstory by a guy named Richard Powers. It's a novel, brilliant novel. You're nodding. It seems like you may have read it. I haven't read it yet, but it's on my my bookshelf. Because I want to read it. You should. I would put it in pole position. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And it's a plotty novel, but it's about the forests and our dysfunctional relationship to nature. And, and one of the characters says something in there about a fundamental misconception in capitalism is that it, it's striving for infinite growth in a finite system. So that's just one of the many critiques. You know, we're seeing a, a rise in interest, especially among young people in socialism or democratic socialism. So I'm just curious, what do you say when you hear—I don't know if people are saying it straight out or implying it—that somehow capitalism is just not compatible with compassion and the common good?
1: Well, I think that's a reflexive belief, especially kind of broadly on the left. And I think it it's, you know, a little bit of like this aphorism, common wisdom usually isn't wisdom— and by the way, because also a lot of people approach business in justifying bad behavior. It's like, well, the only thing I have to do is maximize my shareholder value. I don't care if I lay waste to a community or or the kind of godfather, you know, it's just business. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just a sociopath. Okay. <laughs> right. Like, and so, you know, there's a whole bunch of tropes that kind of lead to that. But it by no means means that it needs to be. I mean, if you go back all the way to Adam Smith and the theory of moral sentiments, you know, part of what was so brilliant about Adam Smith, which many of his proponents forget, is that he was kind of saying, look, it's it's really important to be human. It's really important to have these, these aspirational human attributes. Well, if I have to build a product or service for you, I'm being of service to you. And I have to focus on doing that. And that that's a good thing. And that's actually much better than the alternatives. Most of the critics of capitalism are simply very simple-minded when you go, well, what are the alternatives that you have in mind, right? It's like, well, the government will decide everything. It's like, well, we've tried that in a number of different ways over a number of different centuries in human history, and it's a disaster. I mean, so unless you have a radically new idea that's totally different than the ones that have led to mass starvation, mass genocide, elite nobility classes that control and own everything, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know— be a little bit more sophisticated in your point of view. Well, does that mean that capitalism is the one final end solution? Well, clearly not. We've modified it a lot, right? So we go, well, let's see. Let's have rules on child labor. Let's have rules on work weeks. Let's try to make sure that capital can't overbalance against labor and treat it as like kind of like indentured servitude against the machine. You know, let's do things like that to make capitalism work better and to be more human. And so when I'm normally talking to a critic of capitalism, if they're legitimately engaging in an honest discourse they trying to do it, where most of these critics are just trying to yell from a hilltop saying, I'm really important because I recognize capitalism is bad. And you're like, well, actually, in fact, you haven't realized anything and I get your yelling from the hilltop. But if they're legitimately doing it, say, look, the real thing to do is figure out what mods would you make? Or if you have a whole new system idea, that's fantastic. What is it? Right. Because that really matters because one could say about capitalism what Winston Churchill said about democracy, which is it's the worst of all systems, except when you consider all the other ones. (laughs) Right. So what I try to do is modify capitalism. How do you make it more human, more compassionate, et cetera? And you can do
0: it. The reason why and I want to hear how you can do it, but just to put a little meat on the bone of where this question is coming from, it really is just out of some personal reflections I've had lately and thinking about my own Conditioning. I, I think I'm a year older than you, so we grew up in the same era. And you know, there was a TV show called "Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous," where you were brought into wealthy people's homes. And I remember watching that and thinking, "Yeah, well, that's how I want to live." And you know, that this was the era in which Donald Trump rose to prominence, So the art of the deal, and Gordon Gecko, the bad guy in um, the movie Wall Street, talking about greed is good. And of late, I've just become increasingly aware of how this has created what is sometimes subrosa, sometimes subconscious, but sometimes very much conscious acquisitiveness. And I don't have any answers here, but I'm just in the process of trying to suss that out and question it when I see that arise. Anyway, I've said that was a bit of a word salad. I'm curious to see if you have any response to it.
1: Well, I very much appreciate, and I, I think we should reown the term progressive because like I like making progress. Progress is good. So yes, I'm a Progressive. I appreciate the progressive characteristic to say, look, part of how do we make society nobler? We try to make every individual more noble. We try to make them all educated. We try to make them less free of suffering and fear and pain, that by having less of those things, you can rise to your nobler self. And that we should aspire to where everybody in society has more noble impulses, acts less on their fears, less on hatred, 100%. Absolutely the great thing. Now, the question is, is how brittle should you be in your strategy? Because what do you think your chances of getting there are? Because most of the historical utopians in getting there, like you go Marx and goes, well, once we have a whole bunch of abundant stuff, then everyone will be great. And you're like, Well, one, that's not true. And B, right, like we've almost even run it because we've got an abundance of stuff relative to it. And people are still have their fears and appetites. And like, I want what the Joneses have and, you know, da, 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 da. So you want to design a system that's more resilient to that, where you could actually have people acting like schmucks, right, or selfish or narcissists or whatever. And the system still broadly works, Right. And that's part of the reason why I was early referring to the Adam Smith thing, which is, look, there could be noble capitalists who are like, actually, I'm really thinking about how this new product or service makes the whole world a lot better. And that's really what the mission is. You can have people who are faking it, saying, Whoa, I'm inventing this and trying to change the world, but I'm really doing it for my own fame or money or what else. And you got people who don't care. But the overall system still produces a bunch of things that make our society better. It produces better medical care, more wealth for education, more people in the middle class. And you say, yes, it has climate change implications. But by the way, the climate change implications come from number of human beings in the middle class, <laughs> right? So unless you're volunteering to shuffle off this mortal coil, and how would you make that decision for other people, the question is, how do we target these scale mechanisms to say, well, okay, now we need to target capitalism and technology and everything else to making climate work, right? The same things which have enabled this massive rise of a middle class to also take out the carbon and all the rest that causes that to be a a real problem. And so that's the, the detailed response to that.
0: You were talking before about mods or modifications one could make to capitalism to make it more compassionate and equitable. What did you have in mind?
1: Well, I think there's a number. So like a simple one, like if if you said, could I wave a wand and do one thing? I think there's a bunch of intellectual work to do this, but could you get the bulk of shareholders to agree that there are some important metrics that are commonly agreed upon that need to be reported on by companies that are audited and accountable that then are part of the reporting so they can make a differential choice about whether or not to buy the share or not? And it could be on climate goals and impact. It could be on uh, labor force treatment. It could be on community participation. Within all of that, that one thing, if the shareholders could then be kind of putting some pressure on it, could make changes around the whole world.
0: So there are things to do just at the level of board governance that could have widespread impact.
1: Yeah, and actually, when you're hired as a board member, your fiduciary responsibility, defined by law, is essentially to some conception of the shareholder. Now, what if you said that part of my my responsibility within that is to also make sure that we are accurately telling the world about where we fit? on these social impact measures and what we're doing and where, where we're projecting and where we're going on them, and that we're being honest with the world about that. And then that would be part of your company responsibility.
0: We've been talking at a high level, a macro level, and you've humored me, which I appreciate. Let's just go back to the micro level, and in particular, you. You've had so much experience, and so much success in business, and you interview all of these people who've had so much success in, in business. What have you learned about personal management, you know, how to live your life in a way that allows you to minimize the odds of burnout.
1: So one of them I already hinted at a little bit, which is really emphasize getting good sleep. There's this kind of classic of like, sleep is for the weak, sleep is when you die. You're like, lack of sleep is how you die, (laughs) (laughs) right, in some ways. And people understand that really great entrepreneurship journeys are intensely learning curves. Well, part of intensely learning curves is good decision-making. And it's very difficult to make good decisions if you don't have at least adequate sleep. You might stay up all night this one night. For example, the next night, I had to get up early, and so I only got, you know, five hours of sleep. But then last night, I got nine, (laughs) right? Another one is to make sure that you're in a good kind of centered position. So pay attention to your emotional state. Pay attention to Uh, What kinds of things stress you out? Try to avoid doing them or do them in ways that stress you less. Try to pay attention to things like, what's the easiest ways that you can make yourself happy and and give yourself the fortitude and the grit and so forth to keep going? Don't just say, you know, it's just to live with the suffering. It's like, well, try to make the suffering as little as possible and then live with whatever's left, (laughs) right? You know, for me, like take, for example, some people need like a week vacation or a three week vacation. I actually don't, like, I love them, but I don't need them. What I need is an occasional three-day weekend where the three-day weekend is really like, hey, I'm taking a break. And a lot of times, like, vacations are stressful. You, like, have to plan and and you have to organize everything. You have to go to the airport and get there and then things change and all the rest. And And you find yourself getting back from your vacation. And you're like, well, that was really fun, but I'm really tired now. So I really focus on, for me, what are the maximum ways that I can rest quickly? And then the last thing is to make sure that you that you're engaging with people because other people can help happiness a lot. So even small engagements where you remember that you're kind of going through this life with your friends, going through this life with these people that you love and respect and so forth, even brief ones can be hugely charging. And that's part of the reason why, like, I think one can go, okay, I'm going to spend 100 hours a week building this massive scale company and do that and not forget about the being human component, and not forget about how do I run this marathon of sprints?
0: When you talk about personal connection, doing this life together with other people in your orbit, be it professionally or personally, have you found a way to sort of systematize this to make sure that you're getting enough of dopamine and oxytocin in your life from interpersonal connection?
1: In a couple of ways. I try to as much as possible spend time with people that if they aren't friends, they could be friends. I go against One form of common wisdom and that I prefer to hire friends if I can. Now, there's an additional high beta component to that because what if it's not working out and so forth? Like I I have a little standard spiel that I talk to with friends when I hire that's like, look, it doesn't mean that I might never fire you. But it does mean that I will be always human and I will go extra miles because we're friends and help you no matter what if it doesn't work out into the next thing by the way, this isn't just a personal bias thing. This also increases performance. I like to hire people where I think, oh, I could be friends with this person. Like it's possible because when they do studies of, for example, why do people fight in these most stressful circumstances like a war? Well, they're fighting for the person next to them. And so if you have that kind of in-depth connectivity where you respect and have high regard, even if you don't yet know the person, well, enough have to know if you're going to be friends or not with the people you're in the trench with then that's also a high-performance characteristic.
0: You, I know, have thought a lot about diversity, and you uh, made it a rule to have a 50% at least of your guests on Masters of Scale female. The common knock on the hiring your friends, especially if you're a white man, is you're probably going to get a lot of other white men who are privileged enough to be in this network. How do you work around that?
1: couple ways. And by the way, great question, great challenge. Everyone should pay attention to that, right? So the fundamental structural one is that you're always building your network. You try to make sure that your network isn't just a network of privilege, that if you yourself are lucky enough to have been born into privilege or worked your way into kind of these, you know, kind of elite circles, that you yourself are not doing that. So, for example, at LinkedIn, we have this kind of plus one initiative where it's like, go and build your network to underrepresented minorities and deliberately make an effort to do that. That could sometimes just be mentoring, but find out ways of doing that. We do that at Greylock by working with organizations like Management Leaders of Tomorrow, which are building pathways for people of color into technology executive jobs and founders and investing jobs. So fundamentally build your network, but not just structurally, but also be building your network in that way
0: just listening to you now, it gets me thinking a little bit about where we started this conversation on the entrepreneurial mindset. And I just wonder, do you think there's something about our culture that might disadvantage women and minorities in this regard, in that perhaps white men are sent the message that the entrepreneurial mindset is the right one and you should be encouraged to go out there and fail fast, et cetera, et cetera, whereas others are not given that message?
1: So- one, what you just said is 100% true, which is part of the reason why we did the 50-50 representation on the Masters of the Scale episodes in terms of, of showing that there are these amazing people, Sarah Blakely, amongst many, many others. The way that Tory Burch approached her modeling career was on an entrepreneurial mindset and was the most successful supermodel in history, not just because she looks amazing, but that she knew how to approach it. And so, so one is just the messaging, the expectations, the feedback from society, the role modeling, all the things. The other one is it's much easier to be entrepreneurial when you have a safety margin. So if you have a safety margin, because your father, like mine, is kind of upper middle class, and if I failed at my entrepreneurial thing, I can call him and say, "Hey, can I rent a bedroom and you know go get a job and and pay you back?" And I have that kind of safety net. Well, that's that's a safety net that. Only you know less than fifty percent of the of the population have, right? You know substantially less, and so that's kind of a a place of privilege, and and frequently these underrepresented minorities don't have that. Sometimes they don't have it because their their parents are biased, and they're, that's not a job for a woman or something, and they, they don't provide it, which is what my uh, mother's parents were like to her, right? And so you have to respect that it's not just this heroic. Well, it's it, everyone is self created from zero. No, no, where you start from is a great help in which risks you can take, which things you can make happen. And there is no full equality opportunity. Now, by the way, there's never a full equality on anything. What you try to do is you try to make it better and better and better because the more more we make this network a trampoline for everyone who's talented, the better off we all are as society. It's part of the reason why I do a lot of philanthropy that's in entrepreneurship. And I do philanthropy like opportunity at work. You know, how do you get underrepresented minorities to begin to have the first tech jobs in their family to begin to participate in that and bring their whole family, you know, into these kinds of things. And so you do that because that makes us all better.
0: This kind of, my term, not yours, idealistic capitalism seems to be a through line for you. I was reading in your bio that your goal early on, you were thinking about going into academics and you ended up going into uh, entrepreneurship and your goal... Was how do I help humanity evolve? Yes.
1: And I got this kind of what might seem ridiculously aspirational, ridiculously arrogant goal because I was reading a lot of science fiction as a kid. And science fiction is all about the story of like, what is the evolution of humanity in various ways? You know, if technology is created this way or technology comes into the economic ecosystem in the following ways, and thinking about that and that level of scale, which is the thing that made me start thinking about what's the canvas in which I am trying to apply my life to. And it's like, well, I'd like humanity to be better in some ways because I was here and I was working. And obviously all scale success— can involve super hard work and smart strategic action and taking smart risks, but also has a lot of serendipity and a lot of luck. Now, you try to be strategic so luck can break your way, and there's various ways to try to do that. You know, you're fortunate to be able to do so.
0: Much more of my conversation with Reed Huffman right after this. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% Happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&M's, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER.com to receive 15% off your next order
2: what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
0: I want to go back to your list before of the personal practices that you engage in to avoid burnout and be maximally happy and effective. You talked about, you know, three-day weekends, sleep connections, both to the team and to your people in your personal life. And one of the things you mentioned was avoiding stressful situations. I'm curious, what's stressful for you and how do you avoid it?
1: So I think many of the things that are stressful for me are stressful for a lot of people, which is, for example, when you're giving someone bad news, like they're fired or they're not getting a promotion or you're not going to hire them or you don't want to invest in them and so forth. You know, just like most people, I hate failing. And so when I say take intelligent risk, that's not because I'm risk blind. So, you know, those kinds of things are the kinds of things. And also exhaustion, you know, where you just go like, I'm just tired of doing that. I've been doing that again and again and again. So all of those things kind of lead to stress.
0: But it's not, I'm not saying that you're saying this, but one cannot avoid all stressors, obviously. So it's about identifying the egregious ones for you and doing your best to avoid them while still leading a responsible life.
1: Yeah, ameliorate them as you can. And by the way, one of the macro choices in life is do you choose a high-stress life or not? A entrepreneurial path is a high-stress path, right? You know, joining the military to go into wartime is a high-stress path. That's a higher-stress path. Yeah, all kinds of things are deeply scary and difficult about that. And some people choose not to do that in various ways, and it kind of depends on which things matter to you and which things you're willing to do. Now, that being said, life always has stress. You're attracted to this person. They're not attracted to you. That is stressful to you and makes you feel like maybe you're not as good of a person and maybe that reflects on you in some way. Life is full of these things and you have to navigate them. And the way you navigate them is by being clear-eyed about them and, and knowing yourself and navigating and having the right friends and allies and colleagues to do that, and that's it's always a complicated thing. Now, for me, I like the achieving really, really big things. So I'm willing to go into deeply stressful things because over 50% of entrepreneurial projects fail. And that's always psychologically crushing and draining.
0: Yeah, it's well over 50%.
1: <laughs> yes, there's my own little bias, right? <laughs> like as opposed to 80%, it's like, oh no, it's only 50.
0: <laughs> my brother is a venture capitalist. And when I co-founded my first startup six years ago, my brother took me aside and said, just so you know, he used the number 90% of startups fail. And I actually found it was liberating because then I was like, the odds of that are very low. So I'm just going to approach this with some lightness.
1: Yes. And that's a good idea, by the way. As when I started being an entrepreneur and I told my dad that I was planning to succeed at this, he said, well, do you know how many of these things fell? fail? I said, yeah, 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 I realized that I need to start a sequence of these to have a good probability of having one of them succeed. And, and that I need to have as a learning curve in each one that as I'm doing each one, it's not like, oh, this one do or die. It's this one, give it my all. And then if it doesn't work, then learn a lot and then give the next one my all.
0: You've had a pretty good run. And I've actually been meaning to ask a question about one of the, the bigger startups, which is now a huge company, LinkedIn. And I'm curious, about networking, because this is a social network all about professional networking. And I wonder what your thoughts are about the line between healthy, productive networking and icky careerist networking.
1: Well, probably not surprised to you now that we've been having this conversation. It's a question of how much do you treat the other person as a human being that you're collaborating with? So the icky networking is, you know, hi, I'm Reed. can I have your business card? Can you do things for me? Can you be part of my assets, right? And it's like, ugh. Ugh, right. And by the way, typically networking is thought about that way because the most of the people you meet who identify themselves as networks, who really who walk up to you and do that, are those people. Now, I think there's a really important part of when you say actually networking based out of mutuality, of shared interests, of alliances and what we're doing in the world, of I see you and what you what's important to you, and I respect your interest and what you want to accomplish and respect your time. That when you do that, you build a very strong, you know, in my first book, The Startup of You, we call it like, life's a team sport, not an individual sport. And you build that team that is your life team as you're going through your work and your life and your career. And that's really important. And actually being smart and proactive on the network, not as these are my assets and I have so-and-so. It's like, no, no, no. These are your allies. And by the way, they have to be as equally engaged, just like a friendship. If if you're like, oh, I want to be friends with you, but that person doesn't want to be friends with you, then, well, they may be friendly, but they're not your friends. And that's okay because they have other priorities. And so you have to kind of build that up as a sequence of, of allies. And you see it in all kinds of ways. Like, for example, when you go up and meet someone, do you say, hey, can you do this for me? Or could you introduce me to so-and-so? Or uh, could you buy my product? You know, like, okay, well, clearly your interaction here is for you. Whereas if you say something like, "Uh, what's an interesting thought you've had in the last week or an interesting experience? And then it's like, hey, you know, it's like, okay, we're, we're, it's a give and take.
0: There's a way in which networking can be icky. There's a way in which it can be really awesome because it's not just assets. It's allies, as you said, but being an ally means you can get help from somebody, but you also have to help them. Exactly. A big part of your book is about corporate culture. And one of your chapters in your book is called The Never-Ending Project, culture. So how do you, especially in a large organization, how do you create a tone that is positive, that actually is abiding?
1: So there's a number of different ways to do it, and not all cultures should be the same. Some people need kind of like fear-based, high-performance cultures. Some people need mutually supportive. Some people need fierce intellectual debate cultures. It's it's a stack of things. And so what I find the way you should resolve it is to say, well, for solving this kind of problem with the kind of talent in a persistent way that's healthy for human beings, what's the culture that we should have? And what are the ways to do it? So for example, one of the classic mistakes that people have in culture is they think cultural fit rather than cultural evolution. Like you don't go, do you match my culture? It's, will you help grow my culture in a great and healthy way? That's actually the question. For example, LinkedIn, part of it was to say, well, we want to be an intensely learning culture. So we want to be able to have everyone be able to challenge anyone else's assertion or point of view or say, no, I don't think that works the right way. I don't think that works the way you think. But no expressions of essentially anger or no dehumanizing statements because we're trying to be learning and constructive in how we do this. And you codify it, you onboard people with it, you have explicit discussions of the values, you write them down in principles, you include culture in your performance reviews, and you do all that. And this is all the stuff that you can do from the top down as ways of— getting the system to cohere in a way that's both high performance and high humanity.
0: But it's not one and done. It's, it is, as you said, a never-ending project.
1: Yes, and and specifically, you're always looking for other people's positive contributions to making it better. So, for example, I think the very first rule of culture is, we are all working for the mission, and you can challenge me on the mission and culture. Like, how can we better do it? Like, you say, well, you know, we're supposed to be enabling every individual to have better work and better career outcomes, uh, matching talent with opportunity at LinkedIn. And this is the way that we're trying to do that. But I actually think you're not doing it the right way because we should be doing X versus Y. It's like, okay, you know, you can have that conversation with the CEO and, and co-founder. That's a good thing to have as long as you're aspirationally in the same direction, same mission.
0: A lot of companies are embracing things like mindfulness or nap rooms for the benefit at least ostensibly of their employee base. There's a critique, especially in the in the mindfulness world, there's a there's a critique of it sometimes called mic mindfulness that you're really using this as a band-aid over the essentially sort of an overly demanding system. So you're you're using it as a band-aid to cover up root causes. What's your take on that critique?
1: Well, obviously it could be true in some companies. It's kind of a judgment call per company. But I'm more sympathetic to those critics when they realize that that a part of the goal within these companies is high performance play, high performance output. And just like if you use a sports analogy, you know, well, who won the game? Who won the, the championship? And putting some stress on is the only way that you do that. When you're trying to learn high performance, some stress is part of it. Some stress is also a natural outcome of competition. Now, what you wanna do is you wanna be as human as possible. You wanna be as learning as possible. You want the stress that you grow from. Like, you know, for example, when you weight lift, it puts stress on your muscles, but you're building your muscles. And so you wanna do it in that way. And so the, the notion that you shouldn't have stress as part of what's going on in work is most times fairly naive.
0: I could see a world where it is possible that employers are going well past healthy stress to truly mistreating the employee base and then adding on a, hey, here's a subscription to a meditation
1: app. 100%. That was the reason I said it it depends on specific. Yes. Right? Like if the specific is the beatings will continue until the morale improves. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, here's your meditation (laughs) app. Like, okay, you got a problem. (laughs)
0: Another thing I want to talk about that you talk about in your book is this value of curiosity. I imagine you're, you're talking about it in the context of entrepreneurial mindset, whether you're an entrepreneur or not. So can you say more about what you see as the value of curiosity?
1: Well, it's almost like if I were to kind of say what should be cardinal virtues, I think curiosity might actually, in fact, be One of them, because I think curiosity obviously is a lot of how we learn, how we have, we imagine how the future can be better than today, how we can imagine the possible, how we can also learn about other people. Like, you know, not all curious people are necessarily curious about other people, but it's helpful to actually, in fact, be curious about other people, about their humanity, about their hopes and fears and desires and capabilities and what they're doing and so forth. And that's part of how you create a more human you know, kind of ecosystem. And so I think curiosity is fundamental to learning and improvement. And so I would say it's it's a universal life virtue. Now, it's critical in, you know, high-performance entrepreneurship, high-performance careers, because, you know, learning the right skills, learning the right gameplay, learning how the market's changing, learning how the competition is changing. Curiosity is part of that. And that's that's an important thing that is worth having everyone recognize.
0: And then the, the last question I wanted to ask you is, you've mentioned the, the book and the podcast and the courses, but can you just go through it all again? Can I get you to plug everything that, that seems relevant right now?
1: For sure. So we started Master the Scale with podcasts because we wanted to have that emotional and intellectual touch point with these amazing journeys and learnings that these people who had gone and built, like there was nothing, and then there was something amazing. Um, as part of it. And then we said, okay, well, we're going to write a book because uh, a book condenses that. It makes it more easy to kind of learn it together. And then we did Courses app to say, well, another thing about learning this and democratizing entrepreneurship and making these set of tools available to everybody is also to have exercises and practices because that, that kind of habit of how you do it can also help you learn in ways that is both high performance and high humanity.
0: Reed, thank you very much for doing this.
1: My pleasure and honor.
0: Thanks again to Reed. This show is made by Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant with audio engineering from the good folks over at Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday for something very special. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's very cool. That's on Friday.
1: And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.
2: I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize.
1: This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life.
2: I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you wanna understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight.